Somebody asked me this morning, is it good? To, did you, what did you ask me? You asked me, did you, no, you didn't say us. You said, did you miss your home? <laughs> and I said, no. <laughs> and I thought, boy, that was kind of a crude answer. <laughs> but uh, it's good to be back. And um, sometimes people travel differently. I'm the kind of person when I'm away, I don't think of anything except the people I'm with and don't worry about anything. I know you're in good hands here, so that's always a, a blessing to be able to be in a church where God has raised up folks that are willing to uh, pitch in and help out and be part of of the uh, service in such a way. So it's always a blessing to be able to do that. Uh, this morning, I, I wanna, I've been praying about what to uh, share with you over the next couple weeks. We kind of have some different things going on the next couple weeks. Um, on the, it's not in your bulletin, but on the 9th of, I think it's the 9th of uh, February, is it the 9th? 10th. Um, we're having a uh, uh, fellow come who's actually led mission teams over to India. And so he's going to be sharing, uh, taking a portion of the morning service and sharing with us and, and um, a little bit about his experience. And as you know, um, planning to go over to India in the fall with Sam as our leader, <laughs> and uh, his parents are lining up some ministry opportunities for us uh, even as we speak, and so we're looking right around uh, Thanksgiving time for a couple weeks to get over there and, and kind of explore what the opportunities are for our church to be part of a, uh, a missions uh, event over there, um, not event, but a missions ministry over there, and uh, want to meet some different churches and different pastors and be able to minister, so we're looking forward to that, and so uh, in anticipation of that, this individual has um, taken several church groups over there and has had a lot of experience in missions, and so uh, he's going to come and share uh, the Sunday, the 10th, right before uh, Ken Needham comes, actually. And, uh, and then also uh, Sam will be asking some questions at the close of the service to him as far as what ministry opportunities are available in India and things like that. And so it should be a good time. I say all that to say this, that... Uh, um, we're going to start another book of the Bible. Generally, I teach through books of the Bible, um, not so much topical stuff. And so um, we're looking at a couple different books, and I'll give you a heads up when I get closer to what the Lord's kind of leading me to do. But in anticipation of that, I kind of wanted to, uh, you know, we, we ended Matthew with the Great Commission talking about the purpose of the church. And I thought it would be good for us to maybe revisit uh, just a little bit, um, the church itself and our understanding of the church. Uh, so I, I put together a little series, or I'm putting it together as I speak actually, called The Uncompromised Church. And it's probably going to be maybe three, three to six messages long. And part of that series will be not only um, what we're going to look at today a little bit, what's the big deal about the church, and your notes are kind of... Um, few there. I had an issue with the computers this morning. They shut off and lost everything. So anyway, you can fill in the blanks and, and we'll uh, uh, help you do that. But um, as far as speaking of the uncompromised church, there's a lot of churches today that are compromised. There's a lot of churches today where uh, you know there's people who uh, profess their faith in Christ, and yet for some reason they remain totally... Um, kind of removed or passive about the church. And I know a lot of even people who are involved in serving the Lord and, and uh, full-time ministry, a lot of times they're involved in para, parachurch organizations. And you ask them sometimes where they go to church, and they say, oh, I, I don't really go to church because I can't. I just travel all the time. And and so I don't really have a church. And I thought, boy, how sad is that? It's, it's really a shame to the local church. It's a shame to the whole evangelical church across the board. And there's really a, an apathy, I guess, is, is what I want to communicate this morning, concerning the church. And when you stop and you think of some distinctives that set the church apart, um, God has really... Um, allowed us to be part of something that is just incredible. And yet, for whatever reason, a lot of times, 
the church falls down on our priority list right across the board. And we can um, look at different areas of our life, and usually the church is not on the top of that uh, priority in that area of our life. And it's so I, I come this morning as somebody who's really, I guess, given their life to serve the church. Um, to some extent, when I became a Christian, when I was 19, I came out of a church that uh, taught me a lot of uh, interesting stuff that wasn't in the Bible, and really it was a way of works. It was a way where I did not even understand the grace of God whatsoever. It was guilt, filled with guilt, and the more you go to the church, the more God loves you, and the more you give, the more God loves you, and the more you're involved in certain things, well, God loves you more if you do all those things. And uh, I know a lot of you have come out of that same belief system. And when I, when I finally came to Christ, I realized, wow, there's, there's a whole other organization out there a whole other organism that is made up of people who actually know the Savior. It's not just a building on a corner that you go and, you know, go through all the rituals and do all the stuff and then leave and you have a total disconnect. That God actually gave us something wonderful when he gave us the church. I want you to turn over to Acts chapter 2. And Acts chapter 2, this isn't our text, this is kind of going to be a hodgepodge message this morning, a bunch of different things thrown together, so I pray you'll bear with me, but in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, I just want to read a portion of this because it really talks of the birth of the church. It's hard to understand for us who are part of the church that there was a time when there was no church. That's hard for us to understand. It says when, verse 1, chapter 2, Acts When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia, Pamphylia. Egypt, and all parts of Libya, belonging to Serene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongue, our own language, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked and said, Well, they're just filled with new wine. This was the beginning of something wonderful. It began with a spectacular evidence of the Holy Spirit. Now look over at verse 36. Chapter 2. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, it says they were cut to the heart. They were convicted and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for, this, for, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who, are rece- who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Added to the church. 
It says in verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all the who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Hence the beginning of what we know as the church. It's interesting that it says there that many were filled with all. Those who were gathered together were filled with all. They were excited. I remember growing up going, oh, you know, church is boring. You know, other than the little smell of the incense I got to smell once in a while. And it wasn't as boring when I got enlisted to be an altar boy and had to partake in the service. And, you know, it was kind of cool to go up there to the priest and pour the little water and pour the wine. And depending on what priest you were serving, usually it was more wine than water. But, you know, that was all part of interesting. You had to ring the little bell at certain parts during the service. So you couldn't really fall asleep. You had to be on cue. But I remember when I was younger, 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 I mean, I hardly even remember this. I remember just sitting there listening to somebody in a robe up on a platform say things that I didn't understand. And it was in Latin. And I'm thinking, what purpose would that be for anybody? Very few people understood Latin. And yet, usually the entire service was in Latin. And I thought, boy, they really missed the mark when it comes to the church. And so we never want to become passive when we think about the church. We never want to become bored when we think about the church. I mean, this is, this is an entity that, that Christ gave his own life for, beloved. Christ died for it. And so I, I just want to share a couple points with you this morning of why we should be excited about the church. What's the big deal about the church? I mean, is it that big of a deal? Should it be that big of a deal? Why do we spend so much time, you know, trying to gather people at the church together as the church? Well, the first thing I want to share with you is this, and you can write this down. Some biblical reasons why the church is important. First of all, the church basically... The Lord himself is building the church. The Lord himself is building the church. It's not up to us. It's not up to a program. The church is kind of the the New Testament counterpart, you might say, of the Old Testament temple. Not the, the, the building itself, but the body of all true believers. That's what the church is. The church isn't this building. The church extends these walls. It extends to wherever there are believers. It's a spiritual building. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 with me. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 4, he says, As you come to him, 1 Peter 2, 4, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, And then he says this in verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Then it says to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The only way you can be part of the church is to come through the prescribed means, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other door into the church. It's a spiritual building. It's a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we see this explained for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, most of us know this verse. It says in verse 16, Do you not know, he's talking to the church, he's talking to believers, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. The idea that Christ is building for himself the church, a spiritual building made up of believers, those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, he says this, Paul writes, verse 14, he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with holiness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? In other words, what he's saying is if, if you're a believer, if you're part of a church, you don't want to be unequally tied to something that's, that's, that's not part of the church. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Very clear. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And then he says this, for we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. See, the Lord is calling out for himself people to be part of the church. And it's God that does it. It's not us. I don't know about you, but that helps me sleep at night. It's not up to me to save the next soul. It's up to me to make sure that they understand the message of the gospel. What they do with it from then, that's between them and God. I mean, you'd have many sleepless nights if you thought people's souls were all, their salvation was totally on your plate, on your hands. Even over in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and uh, 22. Ephesians chapter 2. A couple pages to the right. Verses 19 and 22. He says, So then you, speaking to the church, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the what? Household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone of this whole church that we're part of. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. Notice it says grows, it's continually adding people, souls into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I mean, if you had a celebrity coming to your house, say it was the president, or say it was Hollywood celebrity, your favorite movie star, whoever you really are into, and they're going to visit you this afternoon. Do you think maybe you'd make sure the laundry was picked up and the tables were wiped down and everything was kind of in its place and maybe give the kids a little heads up, hey, you know, we got something important coming, you got to behave. You know, you'd spend a little time hopefully preparing for their arrival. Why? Because that person's special. And when they come into your house, it makes it a special place. Well, don't forget that as, as believers, we are indwelt with the, 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 the Holy Spirit, the same power that, that brought Christ out of the grave. And so we need to re- be reminded of that, that the church is special because the Lord himself is building the church as he builds each in, in every individual in their spiritual growth, in their spiritual maturity. The church is his building. It's not ours. And it's here to do his will, not ours. So the first point is basically the Lord himself is building the church. Secondly, I want you to see that the church is important. Not only should be important to us, but to the Lord. The church is an outpouring of God's eternal plan. 
Um, do you know when you look at the church, you look at something that's worldwide? It doesn't, it's not just particular to a certain country or certain boundaries or certain ages or certain interests. It's worldwide. It's all over the place. Over in Titus, chapter 1, Paul writes this letter to Titus, and, and he wants him to understand some things. And, and I just want to read a couple verses here, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, Titus chapter 1. And you'll see here that the church is truly the outworking of God's eternal plan. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God and the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. He says there that this was promised before the ages began. See, sometimes we think of the church as God's last-ditch effort to kind of keep things together. You know, well, Adam and Eve, okay, you're here in the garden. Ah, you messed up. What am I going to do? I don't know. You know, hey, Jesus, you got to go down there now and fix things. Okay, Jesus goes down, he lives, he dies, he rises from the dead. And now all of a sudden, what are we going to do to those people that, that come to trust in Christ? Oh, we'll call them the church. No, it doesn't work that way in God's time frame. He had this plan before the ages even were on the books. It says there, that eternal life from God. Notice it says that God cannot lie. God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie or he wouldn't be God. So when God says something, you can take it to the bank. You can can make sure that you build your life upon his word because he's not going to lead you astray. He's not going to lie to you. But really, Paul here is describing his ministry. It's a ministry of evangelism. The ministry of salvation. And basically it focuses on, it says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Those who are chosen by God. What is that? That's called the church. And as he describes his ministry there, you can really see God's redemptive purpose kind of outlined from election. It says he chose them. They're chosen of God. To salvation, when it comes, it says there, they came to the knowledge of the truth. And even the sanctification is included there because it says, which is according to godliness. And then even the final glorification of us is included because he says they're in the hope of eternal life. See, all that is the work of God in individuals that make up the church. And in You know, basically, when you stop and think about it, before time even began, before anything was ever even created, God determined to begin and to finish his redemptive plan. And the church was part of that. It wasn't something he threw in at the last moment. He chose his people. He recorded their names. And he himself brings them to faith, to godliness, and to glory. And that's a, a, a promise that we can take to the bank. In 2 Timothy 1.9, it says that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. God definitely has a purpose and a plan for us who make up the church. Those who have bowed their knee to the gospel of Christ. Those who have come to understand that they have a need of salvation and they can't save themselves. That Christ came to be the Savior. 
And so the church is this outworking of God's eternal plan. And I just think that that is such a neat thing to be part of that. You know, when we were back in D.C. and we're walking through Ford's Theater, seeing where Abraham Lincoln, President Lincoln, was assassinated and all this stuff, and going through the Capitol and, and the, um, the White House, thinking that these are rooms that literally people like Lincoln and others walked on, walked into. They were there in those buildings. Yeah, sure, they've been remodeled and they've been fixed up. But I thought, wow, what an incredible um, place to be at with all this history just there. I mean, just leaving our daughter's house and driving to D.C., I asked her one day, I said, I wonder if this is the way George Washington went when he rode his horse from his house, Mount Vernon, which is just a thrown stone uh, throw away from her house there on the base. And I thought, boy, what a, what a rich area. And, and you know, we, we kind of see all that and we realize, wow, there's been years and years of foundation building to build up this structure. We know this wonderful country, the United States. And yet we forget that the church was in the heart of God before time ever even began. Before there was even a building or anybody here on earth, the church was in the heart of God. And I just think that we need to be reminded of that. Thirdly, not only is the, the church the eternal outworking of God and is the Lord building it up for himself, but the church is really the, the most precious reality on earth, if you stop and think about it. It's the most precious thing on earth. You know, we sing the song, more precious than silver, more precious than gold. When you stop and think of commodities, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd like to have a couple of bars of gold right now. But you know what? The church is more precious than that. I mean, it demanded, beloved, the highest price paid for anything, ever. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. He says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit with, within you, whom you have from God? Once again, he's speaking to the church. You are not your own, he says. In other words, you don't belong to yourself. Why is that? He says in verse 20, For you were what? What's it say? You were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. That's what makes it the most precious thing on earth. Therefore, we should be glorifying God in our bodies, he says. Sometimes we forget the preciousness of the church to our Lord and Savior Christ and to His Father. And we just think, as well, it's just something we do on Sundays. Something we kind of squeeze in with everything else to kind of relieve any guilt that, well, we didn't go to church. It's the most precious reality on earth. 1 Peter chapter 1 covers this as well. 1 Peter 1 verse 18-19 He says, knowing that you were ransomed or purchased, same thing, that you were, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers or forefathers, not with perishable things, notice, such as silver or gold, but with what? What's verse 19 say? With the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. For he was foreknown, it says in verse 20, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. 
We live in those times. I mean, isn't it neat to be part of the church? Think if you were born in the Old Testament. You know, you had to go, and you had the priest, and you had all these animal sacrifices, blood everywhere. All the, you had to go all through all this stuff in anticipation of the cross. And I mean, yeah, there were some cool things that happened in the Old Testament. Don't get me wrong. A lot of neat ways that God worked miraculously among his people. But nothing, nothing trumps the time that we live in now that we can be part of something such as precious as the church. And he said, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, once again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The church is truly the most precious reality that we know, we should know, on earth. God gave himself up for it. Christ gave himself up for it. Fourthly, the church is really an expression of heaven here on earth. It's an expression of heaven here on earth, you might say. Now, you may be saying, you've got to be kidding me. I've been part of this church, and I've been part of other churches, and they're definitely not a piece of heaven. Well, don't get me wrong. No church is perfect, right? Because churches are made up of imperfect people, sinners, saved by God's grace. So every church has issues. Every church has some drama here and there. But it's still an earthly expression of heaven. Remember what Christ instructed us to pray over in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. He says, your will be done on what? Earth, right? As it is in heaven. Where is that going to occur? Where is God's will going to take place? Do you think it's going to take place in the White House? Do you think it's going to take place in the Capitol, the U.S. Congress, the Supreme Court? No. I don't even think it's going to take place... God's will is going to take place in the local government, in the city and state. I think the only place, really, that we can count on the will of God being close to being done is where? In the church. In the church. I mean, what goes on in heaven? Stop and think about it. First of all, we have worship in heaven, right? We had the service for Cleo yesterday. And I thought, boy, you know, lucky gal. Just go be with her Lord. Doesn't have to deal with her sight issues anymore or aching body. I mean, who would not turn that down? If God came to you and said, hey, right now you can come be, be in heaven with me if you want. Come on. I don't think you know, any believer would really turn that down. Every biblical description in which men of God had visions of heaven, one thing stands out is worship. When you read through in Isaiah, for example, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. The one called out to another and said, and here's what they said to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Or you look over at Revelation. Revelation chapter uh, 4, verses 8 to 11. Says there, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, full of eyes all around and within, day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. 
When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, and the 24 elders will fall down before who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. And they will cast their crowns, it says, before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things because... Of your will they exist and they were created. In other words, every creature in heaven is called to perpetually worship God. So if you don't like worship, you're going to have an issue when you get to heaven. And trust me, worship isn't just music. But worship should be one of the main activities of the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14... 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. First Corinthians 14, verse 26 says, What then, brothers, Paul asks, when you come together, says each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a song, or an interpretation. And then he says, Let all things be done for building up, for edification. So he describes some of those activities that involve worship. But the second activity of heaven is the exaltation of Christ. Christ will be exalted. He is exalted in heaven, and we will continue to exalt him. Because he's finished his earthly work, he's been raised from the dead. He met the Father's purpose and plan without exception. And now he is being exalted in heaven. And throughout all eternity... Heaven will be occupied with those who are exalting his name. Third activity that takes place in heaven is the preservation of holiness and purity. Heaven is a, is a holy place. There's nothing unholy there. It's perfect in every way. Revelation 21.8 says, The cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars are excluded from heaven. And it says, Their place will be the lake of fire. In Revelation 22.14 and 15, it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. See, God admits no one to heaven who is not holy. That's why it's so important that we understand what it means to have our sins forgiven, to be made holy as Christ is holy. It's only through the cross. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try a little harder and and knock that one other sin out. Because every time you knock one sin down, there's ten other behind it. You're never going to be perfect. You're never going to be holy practically here in this place. But positionally, when you put your faith, your trust in Christ and you come to him and you admit that you are a sinner, that you are without hope in this world. Be merciful to me, God, a sinner. Save me. Show me what it means to be your child. Show me what it means to serve you, to live for you every day. As, your, as my Lord and Savior, I, I want to serve you, Lord. You know, that, that's a, a cry from a heart that God will answer. And he'll meet that need. And he'll save your, your soul. And he will add you to what we know to be the church. You'll be part of something bigger than yourself. You'll be part of something that is honoring to God in every way. One other thing that we're going to be doing a lot in heaven is fellowshipping with the saints. Fellowshipping with the saints. Here at this church, we have a building, and it's called a what? Fellowship Hall. Okay? Now, people kind of think, well, fellowship means food. Well, it means that and more. All right? You can have fellowship without having food. But fellowship in the church is just a foretaste of what we're going to get used to in heaven. 
And we're going to be doing it for all eternity. So maybe we need to practice that a little more here on earth is what my take on it is. Maybe we need to gather together as believers a little more while we're here on earth so that we have a little better idea what it's going to be like in heaven when we finally get there. So the church is the expression of of heaven. And it's something that God gave his son for. It's something that he continually builds up. It's something that he calls you to be part of. And the door that you come through to enter into this church, as we know it, is called Christ. Just one other thing. If you doubt that the church is a big deal, all you have to do is look throughout the ages of history and look at how it's been attacked. Look at how Satan, the archenemy of God, has attacked the church. From its very inception, it went under persecution. But I think Satan realized, boy, the more I persecute these people, the stronger they get. So I think Satan is not stupid. So I think he just kind of pulled back on some of his forces and said, you know, maybe just let the church go. Just let them be the church. And I think since he hasn't been attacking the church in the way maybe he did previously as when the church was first born and most of them ended up being martyrs for their faith. Some countries, that's still the case today. But in America, we have the right to gather as a church, as believers. And I think that's drawn out of us not a excitement when we come together, but it's, it's drawn out of us almost a passivity, almost a complacency. Thinking, ah, I've got to go to church. Think of the different things that compete with church in your life. If your life's like mine, there's a lot of things that compete with the church. I mean, just think of three things. Think of, first of all, time. Think of your week. How many minutes, how many hours... Do you spend doing activities that have nothing to do with the church? Nothing at all. Not that they're bad. I I, I dare you this week to sit down with a piece of paper and write down how much time you spend, quote, with the church. I think you'll be sorely surprised. Because it's minuscule, beloved. It's minuscule. Now, there are some churches, when we went back east, Crystal's church, you know, they have Sunday morning, they have, they have Sunday school after or before Sunday morning, then they have Sunday morning, then they have uh, Sunday night service, and they have Awana, and then on Wednesday night, and this is a small church, it's smaller than ours, and then on Wednesday night, they have uh, a Bible study, women's, men's Bible study, they have uh, a children's class that goes on. I mean, they get together a lot more than we do. And still, even if we met Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and maybe if you were really eager, you'd, you know, we'd come down and, and go out on visitation or something for an extra hour. That's still a minuscule amount of time in comparison to what we do with our lives in a 24-hour day. It really is. And I think Satan has just lulled us to sleep thinking, well, that's okay. I mean, you, you can't give the church too much of your time. After all, it's, just, it's a church, right? No big deal. Think of your talent. Think of how God has gifted you. How much of that talent, that gifting, do you use for the Lord? I mean, some of you have a lot of education. You spent probably a lot of money getting that education. Some of you own businesses, and you do, and you, you, you spend those administrative abilities and, and things and strategizing to make your business grow, and you do all that. How much of that do you do for the church? Not, not a guilt trip here. I'm just speaking reality because it's the same thing in my life. Satan attacks the church in an underhanded way, I think, today. He's not going to come in here and lop our heads off. He's just going to have us kind of quietly go to sleep in the pew every week, and then, you know... To exist for a week and come back and do the same thing the next week. That's what he wants from us. That makes the church ineffective. 
So the time, the talent, I mean, I don't even have to mention this, but our treasure. I mean, you know, if we can squeeze out 10% of our income to support the church, you know, we're patting ourselves on the back all the way to the bank thinking, man, we're, we're doing really good. See, Satan has fooled us. He's really fooled us to believe that the church is something that you go to. It's not something that you're part of. It's something that's there to entertain you. It's something that's there to help your, your kids with their morality. And, and they have Sunday school and, you know, works out for babysitting. And it's, just, it's good to get a break from the kids. I mean, that's what Satan has fooled us into believing the church is for. So if, you know, there's a good game on Sunday morning, well, sometimes it's a struggle. Do I go to church? Do I watch the game? What am I supposed to do? I get updates on my phone. (laughs) That'll help. I am recording it. See, I mean, Satan has just literally just blindsided us in so many different ways. And so the purpose of this series is to help us refocus our hearts and our minds on what we know the church to be. I just want to close with a couple quotes. There's a, a book by Michael Griffith, and it's called God's Faithful Pilgrims. And in the book, he says this, Christians collectively seem to be suffering from a strange amnesia, a high proportion of people who go to church have forgotten what it's all for. Week by week, they attend services in a special building and go through their particular time-honored routine but give little thought to the purpose of what they are doing. The Bible talks about the bride of Christ, but the church today seems like a ragged Cinderella, hideous among the ashes. She has forgotten that she is supposed to be growing up, as the soap advertisements used to have it, to be a beautiful lady. You know, he's right. The church, especially here in America, which is supposed to be the bride of Christ. If you're preparing for a wedding, if you're meeting for a wedding, you're, you're not going to treat it like a ragged Cinderella. We need to rethink these things. And the last quote is from Gene Getz, called The Measure of the Church. And he wrote this. He says, Some say a mature church is an active church. They evaluate progress by the number of meetings held each week, and by the number of different kinds of programs going on. Some say a mature church is a growing church. As long as new people are coming and staying, they believe they are a maturing church. As long as the pastoral staff is enlarging, they believe all is well. Some say a mature church is a giving church. As long as people are contributing financially to the ongoing program of the church and supporting its many ventures, they believe it is a maturing church. Some say a mature church is a soul-winning church. They say this is proof positive. When people are bringing others to Christ regularly, when we can account for regular professions of faith and regular baptisms, then for sure we have a New Testament church. Others say that a mature church is a missionary-minded church, a church that supports missions around the world, designating a large percentage of its overall budget to world evangelism. Still others say a mature church is a smooth-running church, a church whose organizational machinery is oiled with every degree of regularity. It is a finely-tuned machine with job descriptions and eight-hour days and coffee breaks and punch cards. Everyone does what he was hired to do on time and efficiently. Still others say a mature church is a spirit-filled church. This is the church that is enthusiastic, it's dynamic, it has my other page here. It has lots of emotion and excitement. Everyone in it knows what its gifts are and uses them regularly. And finally, some say the ultimate mark of maturity is the big church, with thousands and thousands coming to Sunday school and church every Sunday. 
Maturity, maturity to them is represented by a large paid staff, scores of buses that picked up children every week, multiple programs, a radio and television ministry, a Christian day school, a Christian college and seminary, and oh yes, a printing press to prepare its own literature. Unfortunately, some people really believe that what I have stated are actual biblical marks of maturity. See, I want you to see this morning, there's nothing wrong with an act of growing, giving, missionary-minded. All those things are good. But you know what? A cult can have those same things. A cult that doesn't honor God, that believes something outside of Scripture, can have those same activities and programs going on. So in the coming weeks, we're not going to focus on programs and guilt trips, but we're going to focus on how we should be equipped as a church, what our attitude as those who make up the church should be, all those things, so that at least when we look at our church, we can honestly say we're striving to be uncompromised in all those areas. We're asking God to, to use us as individuals with our gifts, with our abilities for his glory, not our own. And I think that that foundation being laid, we'll see God continue to do a mighty work here in this place. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I apologize if it was kind of mixed up and rambling, but Lord, I pray that you would take these words and that you would um, mold them and fashion them into words of encouragement. Lord, I thank you we're in a church that's on the right heading in the right direction. But Lord, we got a lot of work to do. We really have to individually stop and ponder our own commitment to the church, to being part of the church, to being part of something that we contribute to. Father, we thank you for the faithful people who've gone before us here, even in this local church, Grace Bible Church. And Father, we thank you for their foresight and acquiring this property and building these buildings. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to use them for your glory and be a good steward of what you've entrusted to us. And so, Father, that not only is a prayer for us as a church, but even as individuals in the coming weeks as we begin to look at how, what our attitudes should be as individuals and also how you've gifted us to operate within the local church. Maybe there's some here who don't know the gifts that you've given to them and In time, they will because we'll be covering that and helping them assess how you've gifted them and how to use their gifts here in this body. Lord, we're excited about what you're doing here because it's not us who's doing it. It's you. It's your church. You will grow your church. And we pray that we will just stay out of the way and allow you to sovereignly have your way here amongst us. I thank you for those who are gifted among us who continually use their their ability to teach and music and different ways and lord i thank you that they're, they're they have a willing heart and they're serving you um, because they know that uh, that's what you would have them to do lord i pray for anyone here who doesn't know you as their lord and savior they may know about you but they've never committed their life to you i pray that 2013 might be the year that you put the pieces of the puzzle together for them that you call them with that call that cannot be rejected. Call from you to be there, to be your child, that they would surrender themselves to you. And Lord, we thank you for our time. We pray that you would just um, bless our time of fellowship as well over in the fellowship hall. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.